The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. Up on this episode, we have Christian Lungard winning his first IndyCar race and ending a barren spell for Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, stretching back to the Indy 500 in 2020. We also have the end of his horrendous moustache that's now gone, so we can all celebrate that. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that in greater detail in a little bit. We also need to get into Alex Pillow's loose front wing and his bad day becoming a second place alongside a little bit of chat about driving in the wet in IndyCar, uh, what it's like to make your debut in IndyCar, uh, Toronto, one of the most difficult tracks to do so. Of course, Tom Blomquist, we'll talk about him. Uh, We'll also get into the points a little bit and also preview Iowa for you coming up very soon this weekend. So without further ado, hello, J.R. Hildebrand, who's alongside me. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Yeah, uh, pretty crazy weekend altogether. So definitely ready to get into it. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, coming to you from a, an Airbnb in Toronto and somewhere in uh, southern Colorado. So we're hopeful that the sound's going to be okay this week. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to start, JR, by saying that um, I got stopped uh, quite a few times in the paddock this weekend from fans of the pod. Um, a lot of people saying hello to you. So uh, on behalf of them, I'll pass that on now and say hello, JR Hildebrand from them. Uh, but it was great to uh, to be in the paddock and be stopped a few times by uh, people who listened to the top 10 last week. Make sure you go back and check out that episode. If you've not listened to that yet, pause now and drop back and uh, listen to our top 10 rankings of the season uh, so far or our top 11 rankings if that's how you choose to look at it with Alex Pillow being the most obvious number one in uh, a rankings history so uh, definitely go back and check that out but uh, yeah we're going to pick up Toronto so um, uh, I guess where I want to start JR is um, I had a quick look back over the drivers who've uh, won their first race in IndyCar in the last five years um, the names that kind of came out were Colton Herter, Felix Rosenquist, Pat Howard, uh, Alex Plow, Mark Erickson, Scott McLaughlin, Kyle Kirkwood, Renus VK. So I, I guess the question I want to put to you is: Does does well all of those guys are elite elite drivers in the series, and does Christian Lungard immediately go into that category of uh, being an elite driver in this series now, despite only being uh, two months two months off being the youngest driver in the series? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we uh, we talked about it on the top ten rank, the top eleven rankings, um, the top <laughs> ten outside of Alex Pillow. Um, that I, I feel, I feel like we're both vindicated in in ranking him higher than his uh, championship standings just a week later. Um, and mm-hmm. and I think both both of us really kind of noting that it, it wasn't going to take much for us to rank him even higher than we did. Just just simply because of what he's doing on a team that is not Ganassi, Penske, Aero McLaren, Andretti, basically. You know, we we've seen that Ray Hall has definitely struggled some and and I think it's been even more pronounced this year. This sort of started happening in the second half of last year that you started to see a little bit of just the average separation between Christian and Graham and Jack, even. That was that began to grow. It seemed like in the middle of the year last year, and we heard we we heard some from Christian about that, about him kind of just realizing that he needed to just go do his thing. That maybe he was overcomplicating things or overthinking things a little bit, and and it seems like that's just stuck. Like he's sort of figured something out in in himself in the way that he approaches a weekend, in a way that he approaches what he's looking for from the race car that just seems to be working basically and, and and more often than not it's working better for him than it is for the other two guys on the same team um so i think for all of those re- those all factored into why why we both rated him quite highly as a part of our as a part of our midseason rankings and this is just kind of that that last thing that you need to really justify that i think um he was, I mean, just, he had basically just incredible pace for the entire race. I mean, he was, he was kind of the only, I think he could have, he could have basically been on any of those strategies at the end of the race and been a factor in essence. Like he, he was able to do things that it sort of appeared that nobody else really was able to do, which this is, this is really the first time that we've seen that from Christian over the duration of a weekend, but, or, or certainly from you know, kind of heading into qualifying, qualifying, you know, into the race, obviously some varied conditions that we got to see his, 
prowess, uh, you know, in, in a lot of, he had, he had, if you were going to win, if you were going to qualify in the top six, if you were going to stick it on pole, if you were going to win this weekend, you were going to have to, uh, really show off a lot of different environments and circumstances over the weekend. And so I'm, I'm definitely ready. I, I was probably ready to count him in this group and the group of drivers that you listed off without him winning a race, to be honest with you. But um, definitely, he's he's in that group here, and um, you know I, I think we can. This this was not a fluke. I don't think this. He's been building towards this, so that's that's the other part of that. I mean, he could he could end up sort of surpassing maybe a few of these guys that were on that list if if either. I mean, frankly, if he just continues to do what what he's doing, but certainly if Ray Hall gets a little better, more consistently across the different disciplines of racing that they do or that, you know, that they do in the IndyCar series, or if we ended up seeing Christian at one of those top teams that seems to be showcasing more consistent pace weekend to weekend. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely ready to count him in that group. Yeah. Col- Colton Herter said after the, after the race that he was one of the cleanest kind of drivers that, that he kind of comes up against which is a, a massive compliment for Colton but also said that he felt like it had been coming for a while now um, so kind of backing up what you were saying there I think just such an interesting weekend I mean the first practice he was 17th um, he was obviously 6th in the 6th in the second practice so something improved but he after his qualifying where it was obviously mixed conditions and uh, we had um, a proper wet section of qualifying and then the 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 final fast six was was kind of mixed um obviously mixed conditions but we we had christian at the end of that qualifying saying that he didn't think he was going to be a, a contender for pole um if the if the track had stayed dry so such a an odd weekend to to then culminate in having that pace that you talk about jr and being like comfortably one of the fastest guys out there it's just something that um, I guess a lot of people just assumed that in the dry, Christian would fall back from from that pole position and 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 struggle to to keep up with some of the guys who are at the front with him there. But that that never happened. So really interesting. I think underpinning all of that, um, one of the things we've maybe not talk, talked about so much with with Christian, and um, admittedly this was kind of pointed out to me by uh, Ben Siegel, Christian Lungard's engineer, who I was able to chat with um, on the morning of the race actually for for a fair bit of time, and he was kind of saying what he felt like you know obviously Christian's a fast driver and we know he's quick in the car and most of all probably that he's he's adaptable I think the whole paddock know that because of what he's been able to do in that Ray Hall car where his teammates haven't but the other kind of attribute that that Ben Siegel picked out was that he's just so positive at all times like even when um you know you're you're fighting to qualify for the Indy 500 or you're in an absolute hole where where the car is just not anywhere near where you need it to be he's just always trying to find that kind of light at the end of the tunnel and it's easy to sit here for us and say that that's a, a good quality and um it's easy for us to sit here and think that that's a quality that all drivers should have but just drivers just don't all have that ability to to see things that way so uh, that was one of the things that he picked out and he was someone i really wanted to mention on the podcast ben siegel because he's kind of gone under the radar he was given a big chance by bobby ray hall for for 2021 when uh, Christian came in and um, or 2022 sorry when Christian came in and, and they were paired together you know uh, Ben hadn't been an engineer before um, not a lead engineer anyway in, in IndyCar so they, they've kind of gone on this journey together and it's it's his first one as well so from going from having his break with with KV Racing and uh, Rubens Barrichello back in the day it's a, a bit it was a big chance for him to stamp his mark on, on IndyCar as well so an interesting one I guess Ray Hall also um, obviously we should quickly mention them JR having gone through the one of the weirdest seasons where St. Pete felt like it was absolutely awful in, in many ways in terms of pace, but they actually finished sixth and ninth with uh, Graham and, and Christian. So the results don't actually look that bad from that weekend. Then we went straight into Texas where the pace hasn't been good the last couple of years. And uh, I guess halfway through the year, we had the whole Indy 500 debacle and Bobby Rahal was in the the press conference after the race admitting that they had to let some people go after that Indy 500 um, kind of shambles really they they failed to get Graham Ray Hall in the race obviously and he actually said he felt like um, his his like health and well-being had been hit quite hard by the whole events of the the 500 which was you know interesting to hear from a from a standpoint of Bobby being such a big kind of factor in, in the sport but a, a sad thing to listen to as well that that this had impacted him so heavily and he said that continued through Detroit where they had another bad weekend afterwards and since Detroit they've just kind of been on this run JR I guess how much do you think 
a run like that can really impact things. I know uh, it's momentum's an interesting thing to kind of discuss, but um, Ray Hall have obviously had problems and they have obviously still have some of these problems, even though they've won a race. Um, I don't think this is just a, 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 a like a, this is everything's fixed now, but how much do you think the momentum of their performances, especially Christian, since Detroit is maybe carrying them through a little bit and helping them to access this kind of positive mindset that they need to be able to perform at, at the level that they did this weekend? Yeah, I think that... Uh it's it it I I don't really know to be honest with you. It's it's always hard to judge these things in terms of where where diff, where like when you see teams that are so sporadically that so sporadically showcase pace, it's it's really hard to identify what that comes down to and and really what to make of that going into the second part of a season or, or into into more races. I, I think one of the realities of the IndyCar series now is even every street course and every road course and every short oval and every super speed, like, you know, obviously there's not that many short ovals and super speedways anymore, but I think there was a time when there was a, a pretty consistent package that you would take to each of those different types of disciplines. And if it was good, you'd be pretty successful with it. Now, I I think in part, just because the field is so tight, it's so tight and there's so many drivers on each of the big teams that you're you're sort of we're we're like ultra magnified in terms of when you're good and bad. Uh, a place like Indianapolis does stand out because there's so much prep and work that you kind of know just needs to be done for the car to be fast in a straight line down the straightaway, basically. Like that's a big part of being good there. There are cars that don't handle great that just because they've done all the prep, going to qualify fine you know um like it's a place that you kind of can't make up for some of those things that need to get done just with setup and so that that to me stands out as a place where like if you're really good there or really bad there that is on you like that's on the team that's not a driver thing that's you know there all of those other variables the driver the conditions the the this the that the how good the package is, what kind of dampers you're on, all of those things. Those things all matter, but they're a smaller part of kind of where you stack up relative to everybody else. You show up on a street course weekend and and very little of that's, you know, the there's just not as much major prep that everybody's doing. People aren't like polishing their gearboxes for Detroit. So you show up there and you're not good. It can kind of just be a mashup of all of those little variables kind of not clicking and not and not working that then you get a couple of them right for the next street circuit and suddenly it seems like everything's fixed when to your point it's really not. And so a lot of this just has to do with can this group can they find some uh can they find some patterns basically in terms of when they've been good can they identify why they've been good when they've been bad can you identify why you've been bad and start to draw out okay why is this happening at these at these different places and and not to play the blame game with that because they've got three drivers and three engineers and you know they they've got it's it's pretty infrequent okay we've talked about there have definitely been weekends where quick christian has seemed like he's really he's genuinely competitive where the other two guys kind of haven't but even that there's 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 more to read into there that could be because all three of them are on slightly different setups and just it clicked for christian and it worked for him um even if that's the case and so he does extract more out of it there's a lot still to dig into at that point and that i've been a part of this process obviously a number of times over the course of my career you you really don't have time mid-season to do a lot of deep dig, you know, to zoom out and do a lot of that kind of deep digging. So it's not going to surprise me if Ray Hall as a team continues to just be up and down for the rest of the year. It would, it, it would actually, it would surprise me a lot if they have managed to just suddenly find something in the middle of the season and, and, and that be something that's, applicable everywhere else they go i mean that i think that that's just unless you've really been out of whack on something you know you've you've discovered that you 
you've been doing something with your shock package or you've been doing something with your, I don't know, X, Y, or Z that, that there was something like screwed up happening that you didn't, that you weren't planning for at all. And so you've been really out of the window because there's, there's almost like a, like an error or something that you're, that you've just kind of not picked up on in terms of what's going on. That, I mean, that can happen, but, um, you know, these teams are all so good that I, I don't really, I think stuff like that happens a lot less frequently than it used to. So, um, I mean, to me, really what this all just comes back to is, is how great of a job Christian has done here. Um, and, uh, and, and, it'll, you know, like I said, it'll be interesting to see, I, you know, I think one of the things that the Ray Hall cars have seemed to be good at is at least in a general sense. And a lot of times this is, this is because they're qualifying out, you know, outside the top 10, let's say for the most part, I think their average qualifying is almost certainly outside the top 12 on road and street circuits. Um, they do seem to be better in race trim generally. I mean, when you're talking about Christian, there being a thought that maybe he didn't have the dry pace, I would only counter that by saying that oftentimes they have been better. You know, you talked about Graham and, and, and I think it was Christian, I guess at, at St. Pete that they just managed to kind of have something, have a package in the race or it works a little better when it's full of fuel and you're not in absolute max attack mode. Um, but you know, like I said, I mean, that's still, it's still a very impressive, I mean, this is kind of one of those, like watching, watching the last stint of the race, you're just thinking, man, he's just like laying the smack down on all these guys. Like maybe, maybe part of that is because some of the guys that were running up front ended up, you know, McLaughlin and, and Dixon in particular ended up a little like weird on the strategy situation that that didn't quite play, play to their favor. But, uh, and you know, obviously Alex Pillow has like his front wing completely falling off and he's probably holding some guys up. And so maybe, maybe that's a little bit less in maybe, maybe what we saw with a 10 second gap in the end, wasn't, wasn't actually super rep totally representative of, of what everybody's relative pace was, but, uh, but even still, it's definitely just an impressive run. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Yeah, definitely a super impressive run, JR. I think the only things to add there, um, the the restarts were absolutely phenomenal from Lungard at the start of the race when he was controlling those. Um, thought they were really, really impressive. It's not always easy to do it at Toronto through that through that last sector trying to get a jump on the guy behind. So that was impressive. And I totally agree. I think the, the deficit was probably a bit flattering towards Lungard as Polo was saving fuel and probably held up a few of those guys uh, behind him there and just allowed uh, Christian to, to stretch that strategy. But even in the middle of the race when he was you know, when everyone was kind of wondering whether uh, McLaughlin had gone for the right strategy, um, he his lap times, the the pace that he delivered there made sure that McLaughlin's strategy didn't work and that he was going to come out ahead. So um, some really impressive uh, mid-season pace. And yeah, I was interested to hear your kind of description of, you know, how you feel this team is and, and where it's at. I guess um, 
just to add a bit more context, I guess at the end of the 2021 season, they had the best average finish across their three cars. But then of course for, for 2022, they expanded full time with, with three cars, which we know impacted them. Um, they've said since that they didn't really, they, that in hindsight, they probably weren't ready with the right number of people to, to do that, to, to expand. And then in the off season last year, they obviously moved into the new shop, which can always throw up some, um, some interesting deficiencies when you move factories uh, with things like uh, repetition of parts and things like that can can be affected. I don't think that's been too much of a problem for A-Hall or maybe not even a problem at all, but it's these kind of things where, um, you know, these variables can can step in and, and hurt you. And obviously they had uh, Stefano Sordo come in who I think has done a, generally a really good job, but he's a person who has not worked on ovals before. So while he's a, kind of an aerodynamicist by trade, uh, it's a big ask for him to come in and be the technical director of a team that's clearly been struggling on struggling on ovals but also on on street courses as well and for him to kind of be the guy who everyone looks up to and makes a big fuss off because he's come from formula one but hasn't necessarily got the tools to come in and immediately be that guy to to impact things um you know i think the last person who came over with that kind of stature was probably gavin ward and he was obviously able to work under a lot of um you know guys at penske who'd been in the the series for a long time and and kind of Gavin was never expected to be the guy making the final decisions on things whereas Stefano has obviously had to take on that role so I think it's been extremely difficult for him and um, you know probably a lot of people making a fuss about him coming over probably didn't help with uh, the level of expectation there but as Bobby said after Indy they've made some changes they've been swapping people around they've um, you know, trying to get trying to get all the right people in place, and it looks like this off season, um, there, there should be a lot more kind of stability, which is potentially what they need, JR, to to you know grasp some of that consistency that you were talking about there. It feels like every off season when they should have been doing all this work that, as you rightly pointed out, is so difficult to do. Kind of mid season, they've had so many things on their plate to to deal with. Um, the sports car operation, obviously, with BMW, the new hypercar last year in the off season as well, was another thing that I'd forgot to mention there. So this season it should be a lot more straightforward. There's still rumours about Jack Harvey's future. He could potentially be the the one big change there uh, in the off season. But the the team like him a lot, and I still don't get the feeling that they're quite ready to give up on Jack. I think he's got a little bit more time to try and prove that um, he he warrants his seat there. But um, yeah, I think that this season could be a lot more straightforward for for Ray Hall, and that's um, that's got to be a good thing for for them moving forward in terms of consistency. You mentioned Alex Plow's wing nearly falling off there, JR. Um, uh, I guess, did you have any surprise that he didn't get called in by by IndyCar there? Um, uh, I asked Alex this in the post-race press conference and before Alex was able to answer, uh, Colton jumped in immediately and said, yeah, that was totally dangerous. And it wasn't really clear if, um, I'm pretty sure Colton was joking. Um, it wasn't really clear. It wasn't 100%. Well, yeah, he's one to talk because he was the last one to have like yeah. his wing completely falling off i don't remember where it was yeah. at but i mean yeah it definitely uh you know speaking out of both sides of his mouth <laughs> on that one if he was serious um i don't think he was was i you know was i surprised by this i guess i would say i wasn't i wasn't really surprised just because we'd seen this happen before the main reason that it's dangerous is because if the, I mean, and, and the road course wings are, I, I guess a little bit less sketchy from this perspective, like the road course uh, configuration of the wing, it's less likely that this happens, but that it is possible at least. And, and this happens in oval accidents. A lot of times when you get, you know, you get clipped or you clip somebody or you just like kind of get a little part of an accident on an oval. It can happen. It can definitely happen on road courses also. Um, that the main plane basically gets stuck under the nose of the car and lifts the front wheels up and you've just got no brakes, no steering, no nothing. So I guess it, it kind of has surprised. I think I'm pretty sure it was, I, I, I'll have to like look back and we'll have to figure out where that was, but I think it was this year and it was Colton that he had a front wing that was like totally askew. I was surprised when that happened that he didn't get called in, but because we've had this happen once already, um, I guess I, I wasn't, um, I was surprised that I was surprised to, about two other things though. One that it just stayed on for that long and, and two that he managed to extract enough pace out of the car for it not to matter that much. I mean, if that had happened at Barber or road America, like a permanent road course, I think it would have been much more detrimental on a street circuit. It's just, it's bumpy and and the cars you're, you're getting kind of the performance out of the car 
by being a little less reliant on the arrow just one way or the other. It's probably given him a little bit more COP in certain situations, just as hanging down that much. Um, but yeah, I mean, altogether, it's just, it, it, I think ultimately it's just one of these things that like, you're sitting there watching watching Alex Pillow with this totally like effed front wing and he qualified lousy and, you know, the weekend, See, it seems like this was a weekend that should have just completely gone to shit for him and it, it ends up finishing second <laughs> ahead of ahead of all of his championship rivals at that you know it's not it's not like the guy the guy who won isn't even in the picture for the championship of all things so he has he has a weekend that basically goes off the rails and you know still ends up still ends up beating everybody that that's behind him in the points so it just i guess it just is what it is from that perspective i'm curious you were you know you had boots on the ground there this weekend did you hear anything like was there any is there any talk about his situation for next year yet is there any are there any murmurs within the paddock about what that looks like and kind of what alex Pillow's future because it, it it seems like it's still like everything you hear kind of out in the open in public seems like it's you know kind of status quo in terms of there's no new information. Have you gotten any? Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you there, JR, but it was uh, Detroit where Colin had that front wing um, kind of flapping around and stuff. Um, and and I guess just to drive on that a little bit for a second, I, I saw a lot of people kind of talking about Polo and his, the lack of his front wing. I think, I think you just mentioned then that he was obviously saving fuel at that point. And I think a lot of the guys behind him were trying to save a bit as well. So it probably didn't impact performance too much, but it was so lucky that it happened on a, a track where there isn't so many high speed corners where the, the wing's absolutely vital and Detroit was the same for, for Colton, I think to a certain extent. There's not so many, you know, high speed corners there where the where the arrow is so important. And obviously one of the key kind of battlegrounds in IndyCar is the the dampers and the you know, trying to get maximize the mechanical grip. So these cars are obviously pushed to within an inch of their life to to perform well, um, wings aside. So uh, I guess that was one of the one of the fortunate things about where that happened and um, that whole situation. But yeah, it was it was an interesting weekend from a silly season point of view jr because i think there's probably 15 drivers in the field who you could put at three or four teams next year and you speak to different people all like significant um you know i'm not going to give any names away but all like significant people in the paddock like either team bosses or people who represent drivers or um people connected in different ways you speak to them they've they've all heard like or, or say different things about where a lot of these drivers are going even more so than than what's normal i think so um, it almost feels like uh, disingenuous to start like kind of reeling off all of these rumors about where all these people are going because um, I don't think it's necessarily fair and it's it's difficult at the moment to work out. Obviously, as a journalist, um, the the goal is always to have three different sources, um, three different independent sources before you write a story. And um, at the moment, there's a bit of a worry that you kind of get like one story that comes out and then the same people hear the same story and kind of pass that story around. And you, in actual fact, you're only getting one source, not like. Um, three independent ones so it's a really interesting time to be in the paddock from a, a journalist point of view i think with alex um obviously alex uh marcus erickson and, and roman grosjean definitely feel like the cork in the bottle for other kind of driver moves happening at the moment i think it's no secret that alex Plo's management has been working the formula one paddock quite hard recently i think the ricardo move to alfa tauri um was one that obviously alex had been linked with um, and Alex did tell us in the build-up to the weekend there in Toronto that he doesn't have any offers on the table from Formula One. He confirmed that on the record. So I can tell you that now that at the moment, as things stand, there's, there's no uh, Formula One offer. And that might seem like an obvious thing based on Ricciardo being moved into that Alfa Tauri seat. Um, but the, I think there's still question marks uh, from people who know what's going kind of going on there as to whether there might be an opening there next year with Perez potentially being moved on from Red Bull Ricciardo being moved into the full Red Bull team and there still being an AlphaTauri seat potentially open for next season now obviously the complication there is whether Alex is going to be available and what he's obviously signed up to by by that point so there's plenty of rumours about um, where Alex is going still and what Alex has or hasn't done. Um, still lots of stories going around the paddock about um, his obviously um, intended kind of destination, his relationship with McLaren. Um, I guess the, the real interesting part is we haven't seen any kind of like agreement from after Laguna Seca last year where everything was agreed between McLaren and Ganassi for, well, um, between 
uh, McLaren Pelot and Ganassi for them to for, for Alex to basically become a, a reserve driver. So obviously there's some sort of agreement in place where Alex is allowed to to be a reserve driver for McLaren, and that's going to take mostly take place obviously after the IndyCar season's finished. The uh, I guess what we know from his contract um from from last year the, the bit that came out was that he wasn't allowed to talk to any teams until september but what isn't clear is if that changed um you know based on the agreement after laguna seca last year and, and whether he's actually been able to talk to mclaren already uh or or if he hasn't so um a lot of kind of litigation uh to consider like um what people can and can't do what they are allowed to to read or not to read who they're allowed to talk to or not to talk to very complicated at the moment but I think the the kind of prevailing opinion in the paddock is still that Alex is going to end up in a, a McLaren next year um, and, and that's a fairly likely scenario but I don't think Formula 1 has been kind of totally ruled out of the equation yet so um, Formula 1 still seemingly the the key to Alex Plow's future and we'll, we'll watch that one very carefully we've also got Marcus Ericsson um, he's going to I guess come onto the market a little bit earlier because his uh, period of exclusivity, I understand, is uh, August 1st. So theoretically from August the 1st, if he hasn't got a Ganassi deal in place by then, then uh, he'll be on the market. And I'm sure Andretti will be uh, pushing pretty hard to sign him. Um, he told us in the build-up to the weekend that he that, that nothing had changed from uh, the last time we spoke to him, which was that there was no deal with Ganassi and um, no kind of advanced talks taking place there um, or, or not particularly close to, to signing a deal. So he's another one we'll be watching very closely. And then Roman Grosjean crashing out of uh, last weekend's race has put him on people's radar again, wondering whether he's going to get another chance at Andretti, or, uh, which looked like a foregone conclusion um, at the start of May, didn't it, JR? And, and now it looks um, you know a little bit less likely from... Yeah, at least from what people are saying from the outside. Um, I asked him about his future over the course of the weekend as well because he, uh, obviously the Lamborghini uh, sports car programme that he'll be part of was announced uh, last week after we'd recorded the uh, the top 10 podcast and I think it was made quite clear from the Lamborghini launch um, and some stuff that happened at Goodwood that, that Roman will be in IndyCar next year. So I don't know if that's... Um, you know, obviously we've not heard yet exactly what he's going to be doing and whether it's been confirmed, but it, it sounded like Lamborghini expect at least Roman to be an IndyCar. So um, we'll see what happens there. I still think it's very possible that he can end up at Andretti, even if his recent form has been a bit patchy and um, a bit difficult. So uh, I guess that's where the main kind of contenders for silly season are and, and the rest of the seats are going to start dropping as soon as those um, Ericsson, uh, Palo and, and Grosjean kind of deals happen. Um but I hope that answers your question, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I mean the Grosjean, you know, bit the fact that that was even, you know, and obviously I, I just haven't been around, you know, I've not been in the paddock, right? And and these are not the types of things that I typically like spend my time worrying worrying myself with, like one way or the other. <laughs> but uh, the fact that that seemed like sort of a question mark just this past weekend, in particular, you know, I, I guess kind of to your earlier point, like doesn't completely surprise me, just given given that he's wrecked some cars and, and has seemingly, you know, Detroit, I think wasn't sounded like that wasn't his fault. And that was like a suspension failure, but it just sort of feels like he's been on, on the wrong foot here, basically in terms of some things seeming avoidable in terms of, uh, you know, what, what he's kind of his performance and, and results of late. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, there is an element to these things that team owners, I think even frankly, even more so than the sponsors or I don't know, engineers or or the drivers, the team owners can and I don't this is no no comment in particular about Michael or, or anybody else, but I think they they can kind of become uh, like a little embarrassed basically when they have guys that they've kind of you know they, whether they feel like they've stuck their neck out or that they've just signed guys to big contracts or or whatever and uh and that they are either underperforming sort of dramatically or or just end up, you know, having stuff like this happen where you just it's kind of crash after crash after crash, maybe regardless of exactly what the reason for that is. That it it just starts to feel like surely this is possible to avoid. And and occasionally having incidents that that sort of either whether it's the way that they occur on the broadcast or it's just the way that they look when you see the replay or it's the way that they, you know, come across on IndyCar's Twitter or, or threads or whatever, um, that, that like that stuff ends up, I, I guess I, I, I say all of that just to say that 
you'd think that that stuff doesn't really matter, but it kind of does. Like it ends up factoring into the way that teams think about their guys basically, you know, and, and, and I don't, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't really, I, I don't really know why that is. I, I guess I'd, I'll kind of like leave it at that because I, I really don't know. Um, but Roma seems unfortunately to have fallen into a bit of that trap here recently that whether it's kind of just the way that he comes off or it's the, you know, he's, he's very emotional inside the car when things go wrong. Um, and I, I hope for his sake that that's, you know, that, that, that he does, that doesn't end up kind of screwing him somehow, but, um, it's it's not i guess in my mind like it's it's not nothing in terms of what's going on with this conversation about or or there being a question mark in terms of where he's going to land and and kind of end up for next year yeah it's definitely an interesting one and i think the 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 thing that's kind of keeping this going at the moment for me is that they've not announced that you know if they had signed him to a new deal in in may when you know things were going well um you know, I'm sure they would have announced it by now. Um, so it does kind of raise questions as to to what's going on there. I guess the my feeling is that Roman is, you know, someone who's capable of winning an IndyCar race, winning multiple IndyCar races when things come together. And I think the the downsides of Roman are, you know, relatively obvious and you know quite well discussed. That you know he is it. I guess it's not always a downside, but he is quite an emotional driver and. Um, he likes his cars a particular way. Um, he likes to work in a particular way and he's not necessarily that open to changing his working methods and how he goes about things. That's something he's discussed, um, you know, with, with us before, but I, I don't see how that would be a thing that would kind of hold this up or, or make Andretti go in a different direction because they've known about Roman for, you know, they've had a whole season with him. Um, and, and they've, you know, he's, he's coming through the second season. I don't see why that would have held anything up or, you know, slowed things down at all for for me. I think um, you know his his pros and cons are, are quite clear for for all to see. And for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite surprised by how long this has dragged out in a kind of similar way to Ericsson, another person who, um, you know, even more so with Ericsson, is a an obvious person to resign. Um, and and that hasn't quite come about yet. And the reason why it's such a news story is because nothing's been announced, and um, we're kind of being kept waiting in in that sense. So. Um, yeah, two really interesting kind of uh, correlated storylines that we'll um, continue to keep an eye on. So I think, you know, one of the tough things about this weekend or one of the interesting things about this weekend that was obviously a, a, a tough job to be done was Tom Blum, Tom Blumquist just getting drafted at the last minute to replace Simon Pagano. Uh, I mean, this is, it's definitely, I mean, I can definitely speak to just the the difficulty, I guess, of of doing that at a track like this that Tom's never been to. It, he's been in the Indy car. Obviously, he's done a test day, but you know, this is this is just a it's a lot to take in, particularly given the conditions over the course of the weekend. What was your sense of how he got on being there? And, and I guess, furthermore, do you have any insight into what Pagano's situation is? going forward? And I mean, is there, I, I assume they're being fairly tight lipped about sort of where he's at and what the process is that he's uh, sort of going through at this point. But I'm curious on both fronts, what you felt like being there. I think with Pagano, there's one more like test to be done before he's cleared. As far as I've heard, uh, that's not official from IndyCar, but that's obviously what I'd heard. I'd heard that he was in Toronto on Saturday, but didn't actually see him with my own eyes. So I can't confirm that one, but um, yeah, obviously we all want to see Simon back and, I guess the situation of Iowa being an oval complicates things more because it's very unlikely that Trank will be able to get Blankvist in the car again. I don't think in, in such a short time frame they would have to run some sort of special kind of like rookie orientation for him, uh, which I don't think will be, I don't think they'll be able to make that happen. Um, so yeah, so I guess um, Connor Daly will be the favourite to go back in the car if Simon's not available. It's a good option to have. Obviously Connor's been on pole at Iowa before and uh, has ran strongly there in the past, but I'm sure they'll be desperate to get Simon in the car but obviously they weren't able to get Simon in the car for Toronto where Tom Blankvist stepped in he was um he was actually in the UK waiting for a flight to Monaco I think on Tuesday night so he found out he was going to drive not long before everybody else did um which was interesting he was wearing a Helio Castroneves race suit at the weekend <laughs> which also shows you how kind of how how sort of slow um not slow I guess how kind of uh quickly all of that came together and it was a bit of a uh, a shock for everyone that he actually 
um, got there in the end. I think he had, even had to wait standby because one of the flights was like overbooked. So even getting to Toronto was, was difficult for him. But yeah, he basically got there on the Wednesday, was at the track Thursday, uh, didn't have a whole lot of time to process all of the information and then um, was obviously out in the car on, on Friday for the first time since uh, October at Sebring, which is where he drove an Indy car for the first time with Maya Schrank last year. And this was just a whole new ball game for him. Obviously changing surfaces, the the final sector was even more difficult than it has been in previous years with it being resurfaced, lots of bumps and holes. And if you watched it, I think the the turn nine, was it the, in the middle of the track, the, where the really bad bump was? I think turn the 10, yeah, the right-hander. 10, yeah, where they basically had to go left, right or attack it and get airborne. Felix Rosenquist compared it to basically rallying where you have to sort of set the car up to jump over a a jump in a certain way so that when it lands it's going in the right direction that was kind of his description of that whole that whole thing but yeah I was really impressed by Tom he was he was 2.9 seconds off after the first practice but in the in the second practice he actually had a time disallowed which was uh, 1.3 seconds off the fastest time which was super impressive I think for anyone who knows what it's like to drive an IndyCar on a street course where there's so many changes of surface and try, just trying to get on top of a car generally after um I guess he had one day in the car last year, but it's a, that's a lot to ask from him to, to come back and step in at this place and then to top it all off, to throw rain at him in, in qualifying was just the the icing on the cake, really. So I thought he did a really good job. Um, I've heard since May that he's going to be in one of the Meijerschank cars next year and that um, the only reason that hasn't been kind of announced formally is trying to work out sort of who goes in which car and how they sort of structure that whole team for, for next season in terms of drivers. But um, I, I didn't get the feeling that this was like a... Um, like a, a situation where he had to impress so much that that was what was going to earn him the seat next year. I think that was already sorted, but I definitely don't think he did himself um, any harm with how he approached everything and and that in particular that that if that time had stood, um, which there was nothing like he did wrong. It was just um, a couple of yellows came out and and kind of ruined his lap and then ruined the next lap as well, which was which meant he wasn't able to then um, make the most of the sort of conditions being perfect at that time in the session to to set another time so yeah I thought he did really well and then obviously in the race he was caught up in that lap one incident where everyone but Graham Ray Hall escaped um, reversing up the road there and then driving down the uh, driving down the slip road which was super impressive if, if you haven't seen that that was a great piece of uh, heads up driving from Graham I'm not sure if all series would have been too happy about someone <laughs> reversing up a live racetrack to take an escape road we've seen uh Obviously, Ayrton yeah, Center in Formula One is kind of the funny example of that one, isn't it? Um, when, when he uh, when he lost his championship, but uh, I guess it's not doesn't happen too much in modern motorsport. But that was an interesting one. But yeah, Tom on the whole, I think impressed everybody with how quickly he came in and and delivered. So yeah, it's going to be super interesting to see um, how that all kind of plays out. Whether my information is correct that he has got a seat, or whether uh, anything's going to change there. I also heard Felix Rosenquist being connected to that team for the first time this weekend. That, that wasn't something I'd heard before. But again. As I said earlier in the podcast, we basically heard every driver being connected to pretty much every team. So um, I can't establish like whether Felix to Meyerschank is actually a, a serious one that's likely to happen or whether it's just one of these kind of paddock rumours that's doing the rounds. But I guess before we move on to Iowa JR, we should just quickly run down the the standings. As, as you rightfully pointed out, it was kind of a perfect situation for Alex Plow. He had another bad weekend uh, it, like leading up to the to the race and then in the race itself things looked like they were going to fall apart and and yet he still extended his <laughs> extended his points lead so he's what 117 points in the lead now over Scott Dixon who um with uh Will Power and Marcus Ericsson having to stop for splash and dash at the end there just about held on to his second second place in the championship which I think would have gone to Newgarden uh, before that whole uh, kind of thing shook out there um Dixon also passed uh Newgarden it was a great drive from Dixon kind of went under the radar because mm -hmm. he went back to I think Hinch said 14th on the broadcast. I, I thought I had him down at 15th, but he was around that area anyway after, um, yeah, kind of being on the wrong strategy, I guess you would call it in hindsight. Um, but yeah, drove all the way back through and that late pass on Newgarden was quite important because it, it was one of the things that made sure he kept second in the standings. So we'll keep an eye on that. Marcus Ericsson fourth and Pato Ward fifth. Just going into Iowa, obviously, um, I guess three things to consider here. It's... Um, Obviously, a place where Alex Plow wasn't particularly fantastic last year, although he did score a sixth. Uh, but he felt like it was one of his worst tracks last year, so it'll be definitely important to keep an eye on them. Colton Herter was fastest in the test there recently. Um, his engineer, Nathan O'Rourke, was really happy with the work they'd done and felt like they'd found a lot of pace. If you'd spoken to any of the Andretti people 
in the off season sort of um the the shorter ovals were definitely a an area that they were looking to focus on and then obviously joseph newgarden's having the pressure piled on him because it's a double header at iowa which is basically his track um so there's uh a lot of kind of eyes looking at him now as if he can um reduce this gap to to alex below via two uh two wins at iowa i did say to him uh, are you expecting to win those two races and he, he definitely said that wasn't the way he was looking at it and not the way he was approaching it um i guess just to talk about some of the challenges of iowa jr you've obviously gone very well there in the past and had some some strong performances there i guess just my kind of perspective from speaking to engineers and stuff like that over the years has been that the the tire degradation there is so much higher than quite a lot of basically any of the other tracks on the IndyCar calendar, if not um, if not all of them. So uh, I guess keeping your keeping your tires in the right window and making them last for the the longest kind of period is important. But also strategy, you know, whether to whether to ditch a three stop for a four stop, for example, um, you know, based on the tires going off and stuff like that. So strategy does uh, tend to become quite important, in Iowa. Yeah, I think the biggest thing in the end ends up being just can you how long can you how long can you make the car last through a stint because that makes all your strategy decisions less risky. Basically, you you, you can decide to do some different things, but if you know you can make the tire still work and have pace relative to the field, uh, because the other part of it is there there have been Iowa races where there's not you're not because there's some fuel there's fuel saving involved you're not like immediately catching the back of the pack but with this many cars on track that's just going to end up happening so you're there's there's an element i mean we talked about it last year that part of why joseph is so good is because they've obviously got a good package at penske and and he kind of knows what to do with it to extract pace and it and it does tend to last over a stint but i mean i i still remember being there for the test day last year just watching from the spotter stand because I was supposed to be in the car and, and that's kind of when everything was going, you know, a little sideways with rocket and, and whatever else. So I didn't end up actually doing the test, but was there. And I remember watching he and McLaughlin do a, do a full fuel run. And, you know, Joseph had put half a lap on McLaughlin, you know, you assume basically in the same car in a stint during the test day. And so, that to me, I think that also just speaks to that it is a place that there's a lot of decision making that goes on inside the helmet. And particularly once you start catching slower cars, just how, how, and it's, you know, I, I'll, I'll reiterate the same thing that I remember saying about it last year, basically, which was that it's not just how aggressive you are. It's not, it's not even the car necessarily working in one place versus another. A lot of it just has to do with, it actually has to do with being patient about which lane the car in front of you is, is working. Are they running low in one and two or high in one and two? Are they running low in three and four or high in three and four? And being able to maintain your momentum, not accident, not, not like, trying to jam it in on somebody and then they end up being on the same lane in the same lane that you are. And so you get hosed for half a lap and it takes you another lap and a half to get spooled back up to make that same pass. So you'll see that happening at Iowa among, you know, among drivers that are fighting for, for position on the lead lap without question, particularly once you get halfway through a stint, just because people are going to kind of migrate towards the cars working better one place or another, or there being some, uh, you know, driver choice basically involved in, where they kind of want to operate over a stint. Um, but like watching, watching, watching the Joseph Newgarden clinic clinic at Iowa over the last several years, a big part of it has just been his ability to not, he's like losing less time than other drivers, than the other drivers that are around him by a having the package and having the ability to put the car kind of where he wants, but then b using that to, is absolute maximum advantage by sort not not getting too far ahead of himself. You know, you see a lot of times Joseph's it's it it looks to me like he's kind of partial throttle at the end of the straightaways to let the car in front of him start to it's almost like you're you know if you're if you've ever like sp box you've sparred in boxing, you're kind of like you're not looking the other guy in the face. You're looking like at their shoulders, waiting to kind of just see which one starts to move first. Like that first kind of 
little tiny movement is is the initial reaction that you're looking for. And I feel like that's how Joseph treats a driver that he's chasing down at Iowa. He kind of waits to see where they start to go. And then that allows him to commit without getting held up in whatever the other lane is, basically, um, to to maintain momentum and, and keep that going uh, throughout the lap. And so I do think that, I, I think it's inevitable that another driver or another team is, is as good as Joseph is here. And, and I think that if, if you, if I had to just draw that name, you know, or I had to pick somebody at the beginning of the year, just kind of out of the blue, Colton Herta and Andretti like would have been in my top two or three choices, probably regardless of whatever they end up doing at a test day, just because they have been, he has been good on short ovals as he said to us, despite, you know, what maybe the media quote unquote, like, uh, you know, thinks about that or, or remembers about it. <laughs> and Andretti is also a team that historic before, before it became the Joseph Newgarden show, it was the uh, Andretti Autosport show at, at Iowa. Like they were the ones that kind of, whether it was Marco or Hunter Ray or whoever, it was one of those drivers that was showing up and, and kicking ass at, at Iowa for a number of years in a row. So I think that Colton can definitely be in the mix here. I think I would still give the nod probably to Joseph just in terms of racecraft as we've seen it at this place. But, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see, to see how it goes. And I can imagine for Joseph that you, it, it's, it's probably hard not to feel like not to go into this place with the expectation that you are at least going to be in the hunt for a win. I mean, you, you don't, he's smart enough to know, and as, as is his team, not to go into this, you know, thinking that it's win or nothing, because that's just, that's not a mentality that, that enables you to react to things as they're happening really. But you got to think that it's in the back of their minds, at least that this is a place that they should be able to show up and, and be quite good at, um, I guess at the end of the day, it's also not going to surprise me if Ganassi gets a little better there. And so this becomes a track that Alex Pillow is, you know, maybe Joseph, maybe Joseph wins both races, but you know, it could end up that Pillow's on the podium for both of them also. So, um, I guess I'm, I'm not to put a little, to throw a little cold water on just like the whole thing in terms of, from a points perspective, I'm not really anticipating that this is going to be like the huge swing that, that you, that you might look at it and, and think it could be from the outside, but, um, you know, they're uh, unquestionably it's two events that can be a pretty significant difference maker just in, in any particular driver's season at this point, because, um, it, you know, it's, if you're good in the first race, you're probably good in the second race. And there's just a lot of points on the table. So uh, it's it's one I'm it's one I'm definitely looking forward to from that perspective. Yeah, presumably, either um, Rena's VK is going to smash into Alex Plo in the pits, or Alex Plo is going to get caught up in a Kyle Kirkwood Helio Casanova's crash and then win both races. Um, <laughs> that having happened previously, <laughs> judging by how things have been going for Alex Pillow recently. It's going to somehow work to his strategic benefit that he gets stuck in the pits for half a lap at some point and uh, they're going to go off strategy. And then, so so I I want to actually back up really quick to Toronto for a second. How did, like, did you talk to anybody on the 12 or the eight stand in terms of like what happened? I mean, I, I listened to Will's interview afterwards and he, he seemed sort of baffled. Like he, he was basically saying they could have just given me a, a bigger number and I could have hit it. Yep. I think that was the case with, I think well, that was, was the case any, with both of them. Was there any discussion about that? Like that's, that's such a, that's, that struck me as just the fact that we ended up with these three different strategies did not seem crazy to me at the end. So you basically had cars that had already pitted that were going to try to just or or that I guess took the you had cars that took the took the beginning of that yellow mm-hmm. that then we're going to be able to go to the end and then you're kind of sitting there like okay Lungard Lungard stayed out McLaughlin stayed out Dixon stayed out you know a number of guys stayed out but the the majority of the field on the lead lap took the first one or took the beginning of the like the when, when the pits opened they came in um 
then basically that yellow last or or the maybe that was when Elio's thing happened. So there was another yellow immediately after that, I guess, or something. And so anyway, the Lungard and and kind of the rest of the guys, except for in essence, except for McLaughlin and Dixon, then pitted. I felt like the when when you see McLaughlin and Dixon stay out, you're sort of I, I mean putting myself in in their shoes. I, I'm I'm thinking I think that you're thinking everybody else is going to have to fuel save. Maybe we've got great pace. We're just going to go and and kind of we're we'll have to pit at some point. But maybe the pace differential is enough. Like there's there are a couple of ways that that works out for those. It becomes lower odds, but there there were some ways that that could have worked out. So I guess at that point, when you're in that mode, I was watching it just live, thinking, I don't I don't really have an odds on favorite here in terms of who who I think and for anybody this is going to depend on either having awesome pace or being able to pass a lot of cars right quickly or whatever. And and there was no particular favorite in my mind in terms of who that was going to be like everybody had some challenges that they were going to have to overcome to make it to the end. And it, and it was, it became one of those races that at least among uh, like McLaughlin and Dixon and the drivers that did make it to the end, for sure, if it had just gone a lap longer or, or something like that, you would have had a very different outlook in terms of who was who was up at the front and and i guess probably not in terms of who won the race because obviously christian ended up having he had enough of a enough of a gap that you'd think okay if he'd had to save for an extra lap that might not have changed his positioning relative to everybody else but i just i feel like it's been forever since you've seen cars pit on the last lap of the race because they're going to run out of gas like that like that just was baffling to me that that occurred at Penske and Gassi, too. Like it wasn't. I mean, those are you just don't you don't expect that to happen. So I was. I'm just. Yeah, I was curious if there was any like rumblings of was there because surely I think it, the easy thing to do from the outside is say, oh well, they thought there was going to be yellow or or they thought something was going to happen. I, they're not. That's you know they they have all of the cards on the table. As soon as they make that pit stop, they don't they don't leave it up to chance for one lap. You know, if, if you're going to be three laps short, then yeah, maybe you leave it up to chance that there's going to be a yellow coming out. But that seemed just so bonkers to me that that happened to those two guys. Yeah, I'll try and grab those two teams in Iowa and find out what happened. I guess the fact that it was two of them at the same time kind of makes it more weird like that that, that would happen. Because I guess if one of them had done it, you'd have just thought, well, they've made a... There's been a calculation error there um, because because or, Will, or somebody got a short fill or whatever. Like yeah, because I, I totally agree. I thought the same thing. Like if it had just been one of them, you'd think, oh man, they yeah didn't get all the fuel in the car, and so suddenly they're realizing that they're short because Will he's said in he the could collector. easily save a lap. Will said it was it would have been easy for him. To, he didn't say it was like yeah. He, he said it was easy for him to do it. So there's got to be some sort of you know some sort of error along the line there. We just need to find out what it was. Yeah, yeah, crazy. A crazy way for that just i mean you just had that whole that whole jumble of cars that were basically running together yeah earlier in the race ended up on three different strategies and all running right up against each other again right at the end which was uh, it's it's i do feel like it's rare to see that much variance and it all just end up you know sort of colliding with each other right at the end either way yeah yeah definitely i guess it's the it's such a weird situation. We'll definitely have to dig into that one a little bit more. I think the only other thing I wanted to mention about Iowa and about Joseph as we were on the topic of it is, um, uh, I guess this is a roundabout way of telling the story, but we were, we had Joseph pre weekend kind of speaking to him in the, in the media pen and we were talking about Iowa. So it kind of came up and I just kind of instinctively said to him, like, how did you test go? And Nathan Brown from the Indianapolis star was like, before, before Joseph could answer was like, he didn't test it. He didn't test at Iowa. He went to Road America instead. The the Penske guys went to mm-hmm. went to uh, Road America, and I was like, "Yeah, Joseph, that's a that's a journalist smackdown right there. That's like <laughs> that's a that's a pro journalist doing his job and one who hasn't done his research properly." But anyway, um, interesting to kind of raise the fact that most of the field had tested at Iowa when Penske hadn't. We've seen that kind of impact things in the past in you know teams going to different places and 
especially before the testing rules were tweaked a little bit in the off season last year we saw a little bit of Penske and Ganassi going to different places in, in the last couple of years didn't we and um, seeing how that kind of um, you know it was kind of like a tactical thing to decide where you're going to test and where you're going to kind of prioritise I guess Penske feel like they're so strong at, at Iowa that the trying to improve at Road America was the, the bigger factor for them but it's still going to be interesting to see how big a step forward the other teams have taken and if that impacts um, how Joseph kind of gets on there. Well, and, I, and I'll I'll just tack onto that super quick and say that that's that's definitely not insignificant. I mean, I I've definitely I've had the experience at Iowa of one. I mean, when I was testing for Joseph because he his hand was bugging him still. That we went. Jeremy Millis was his engineer still at at ECR. We showed up. They had a bunch of things on the agenda that they wanted to go test. I hadn't been in the car. I guess I we'd already been to Indy that year, so I was coming out of having been in the car at Indy, but hadn't been in in the car at Iowa in that car. That was like the Arrow Kit car, and got in. And I mean, this so this is kind of to speak to what Colton and and Nathan, I think, experienced. That got in, and it was one of those days that we ripped through like fifteen different things, and and we were picking out. You know, I want this left front damper, that right front damper, this left rear damper, that right rear damper, like with these clicks and and what, and not that I was dictating those things, but among the choices, like you could get that granular about what was, what you, it wasn't just this kind of like, oh, we're just trying new front springs or whatever. Like it was very, it's a track that because it's bumpy, because it's, because it's kind of as, as difficult as it is just in terms of getting the car to feel connected to the road because the, and the track grip has continued to go away basically, even since then that was 2016, I guess that it's a place where, and that as a driver, you are looking, you kind of, whether you always, I was lucky to kind of just have a sense of what I felt like I needed the car to do there from like the first time I showed up there in an Indy car, but sometimes it's not quite as quite that obvious. And now that you're not flat through the corners that can, you know, sometimes that can make it even less obvious because you don't have just this continuous feeling all the way through the corner. Like the car is just, once you're having to roll out, um, it, the car is just going to feel like it's doing slightly different things or more different things, entry center exit as you're, rolling out of throttle, making downshifts, rolling back to throttle uh, for the exit. You've got a little bit more pitch in the car as opposed to when you're flat through the corner, you're really trying to just set an arc and the car is going to feel however it's kind of going to feel pretty quickly right away once you bend in and it builds load on all four tires, builds like that lateral load into the corner. Um, but I, I say all this just to say it's it's a place where I've definitely had the, had the experience like it would not have mattered where we ended up on that test day. I would have handed that thing back off to Joseph and told him that he was going to qualify at the front and run at the front. Like you just, you could, the feeling in the car was, it was so apparent and so confidence inspiring at this short little oval that you could, that you could run even on the test day when nobody's, when nobody's running the second lane, you could just tell, all right, I'm going to be able to bend into the second lane here and hold it flat and this thing's going to stick and, and it's like going to rip off the corner. Like I'm going to have that nice pop of acceleration just because of what we've found in the grip and the kind of just general behavior and, and, and handling of the car here. Um, you know, we ended up, I think we were P2 that day on a qual sim that we did on used tires. And so it's, it's definitely that type of track. So I guess I would say on the one hand, I would absolutely take what, Colton and Nathan discovered at, at, on, on sort of merit, like that's, this is a place where if you feel that good after being there on a test day, that you found a bunch of stuff and, and you know why you were P1, like, you know, that you made progress to get to the point that you were the fastest car out there. And you know, you had a good sense of how the car was going to dig over the course of the, of a stint that is going to show up and, and be meaningful when you come back on on a race weekend even if the wind is in a different direction or the conditions are a little bit different or or whatever there are some tracks where barber you could go have a great test day but if it's hot versus cold or something like that then it means almost nothing when you show back up for for a race weekend so iowa is not one of those places and then as far as 
you know, Penske not being there, that might not be a significant factor, but I can say for sure. I, when I was full-time at ECR in 2017, I was really questioning why we were going to test at Iowa because Joseph had just won there last the year before I had driven the car that he ended up going and winning the race with. Like, I didn't feel like there was any, I was, I was, I felt very ready to just get in and go stick the thing on the first couple of rows and be in the fight to win the race. Um, we showed up for the test day. The tire was like a tiny bit different. And the car that I had driven on the test day the previous year that Joseph had, you know, run to the, to the race win was not the car that was underneath us. We had the 2016 tire. We had like three sets of the 2016 tire, three sets, of the 2017 tire or something like that. It felt amazing on the 2016. We, we did like the first couple of couple of tire runs on the 16 tire to, to get rid of them basically. And I was still at that point feeling like, why are we here? This is such a waste of time. Then we threw the 2017 tire on and the car was, was totally numb. Like it did not have the same, did not have the same reactivity through the steering wheel. It did not have the feeling that I was looking for certainly. Um, and that, and that we, that you knew it had, cause just on that same day, we had had the, the earlier, the other set of tires and, and it felt amazing. So, um, that was another example of a year that Penske didn't test there. And, uh, while Elio, I guess, ended up winning that race, um, Joseph was not, was not the same Joseph was not on the podium, was not the same Joseph that, um, that he is here. So that, that speaks a little bit to just what, what different guys maybe look for in the car and, and whatever, in terms of what went on that season. But, um, I, I guess it's, you know, in, in bringing up the fact that there was some drivers that felt like they had a really incredible test and that Penske has not gone there to me, that just adds a little bit of fuel to the, to the thought that, um, you know, there's at some point Joseph's going to get upset here and that, that could be this weekend. All right. Well, that's great insight. Thank you very much, JR, for all of that. We're going to finish the episode there. Make sure you head to the-race.com for all of your latest news, analysis and features coming out of Toronto and also going into Iowa as well. And make sure wherever you listen to your podcasts that you give us a little review. Hopefully it's five star and go back and listen to some of our previous podcasts, especially the mid-season rankings that we always do they uh, came out with our last episode so you can go back and check and let us know if you agree with our decisions uh, feel free to send us voice notes to podcasts at the hyphen race.com or just emails uh, with questions uh, anything that you want to let us know about the show anyone you want to hear on the show if there's any guests we can get on that you really want to hear from through the 2023 season then let us know that's all this week for the race indycar podcast The Athletic.